All right, welcome to another episode of Accounting Insider. Today we've got Jaden Vecchio with us. Jaden is a superstar in the podcasting space. <laughs> um, he's laughing at that, but really, I, I say that, and, and I don't say that lightly. Um, you, your podcast is getting amazing results. Um, it's called the Rent Vesting Podcast, and yep. it is consistently in the top fifty business best business podcasts on iTunes. So we're going to drill down on that a bit later, but. Jaden, you are a um, you're working in sort of like a uh, firm in Brisbane, Australia, which is um, does all things property. But you're in the um, broking space, which is um, in, in particular you're in the commercial space. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So our business um, it's about as sexy as a property business can get. So it's like accounting. You know, you've got to put that nice spin on it. So you know, we call it and. and all-in-one sort of property advisory business. So we do finance, so mortgage broking, both residentially for people, mums and dads buying a home, um, up until commercial, you know, people, that are investors that might be institutional size or even just individual property developers um, developing property. And then we do property sales, so your normal real estate agent, um, property rentals, and a bit of development management as well. But yeah, primarily my side of the business is the finance side. So I get to yeah, you know, got guys in my team that, like I said, help mum and dads or refinance loans or restructure and that side, um, all the way up to you know syndicates buying shopping centres. So it's it's a pretty fun and you know it's as sexy as property gets, really. I think. Uh, I think it's great, <laughs> and you know the beauty of your business is you build up this ongoing income stream, which you know whether you get out of bed in the morning or not, the money keeps rolling in. Well, and I think that's where we're pretty lucky in that. Um, especially on the finance and the rental side, they're both annuity businesses. So your listeners would know from having businesses, you know, there's different types of business, but if you've got um, a company that sells matchsticks in retail, if that happened, you know, every month you've got to sell enough matchsticks to keep the lights on, whereas we're lucky in the way that our business has been structured and the way they're set up, um, especially on the on the finance side, residentially we get paid trail um, on loans as long as they're in existence um, and commercially as well we get pay to trail generally um, for as long as the facility is in place. So usually commercially um, facility might only be there for two to five years, um, but then you can refinance and redo it, whereas for a home loan it can be 30 years. So it's a bit of a different model, but definitely um, that annuity stream has really helped us um, set up the business more for the long-term view and we're not having to think too short-term about making money and we can grow it steadily and and not have to be too jagged. I... um I run my accountancy practice here and, you know, it's like you don't get paid unless you do work. But we've moved into the mortgage broking um, sector as well and the trail um, is slowly building up and it's just an awesome income stream to make sure that every month that money just comes straight into your account. It's just it's an awesome business model. And the other thing I like about it is that if you do go to sell your business with an accounting practice, you know, whatever your fees are, it's like one times that is, is the value of your business. But with a mortgage book with this ongoing revenue, it's like three times. Is that right? Yeah, three to four times. And that's where um, I guess the value in our business potentially over the long term is um, you know, having more touch points. So if we've got the finance, we've got the sales, the rentals and development management, that adds to your multiplier as well because you've got a stickier customer effectively because I guess in your business too, instead of just being on the accounting side and having the fees there, you've got their accounting, their home loan, you've got multiple products in there which ultimately gives a better experience to the customer which is really, you know, the primary driver but the secondary driver as a business owner, you've got a more valuable asset because you're helping them on multiple touch points. So yeah, I think it's it's an amazing business. It's really good. So, 
when, when you're organising these commercial loans, we're not talking one to two million dollar loans. We're talking much bigger scale, aren't we? Like, uh, can you tell us, give us an insight into the biggest commercial loan that you've settled? Um, yeah, so we've done a couple of bigger ones. So that's where commercials really interesting as well because it's not like um, residential where you know you might be doing a house it's either a unit a house or a townhouse commercially it can be a shopping center it can be an office tower um, it can be you know a 30-story building um, but I was really lucky we picked up a client about two or three years ago that's a, um, a fund manager down in Sydney um, and they had a fund that had I think it was eight office towers um, across Australia and the assets in that one particular fund are about 150 mil. Um, so we were able to set up the refinance from their existing bank, which funnily, this happens with mum and dad. So, you know, you've been with the bank for a few years. Um, they help you on the way in. They're really helpful. They'll return your phone calls. And once a loan settles, they become ghosts and you never hear from your bank or your bank again. Um, it gets two years. They don't offer you a review. It gets to three years. You your bank has changed seven times and then four years you don't even know who you did the deal with originally. And it was the same with these guys. Um, you know, they were fund with an $88 million loan facility um, that the banker, you know, they changed a bunch of times. They weren't getting the service. They weren't getting reviews and slowly and slowly the interest rate was creeping up. Um, so we came in, helped them basically renegotiate that, tended it to a, a range of banks, which is what you do on the residential side. But it's just a lot bigger and end up settling in it and it's yeah, $88 million deal, which is pretty fun. So and looks good on the books. <laughs> is that the year that you won Commercial Broker of the Year? Uh, I think it might have been one of them, not to sound too silly, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think I, I, I'm fortunate because I came from a banking background um, and being probably a bit younger than a lot of the guys in the field. Like typically a commercial broker is someone that has been a career banker got to 50 or 55, became redundant and thought, well, I can't get another job in a bank, so I'll become a broker. And they kind of do a few deals here and there, but not much. Um, whereas I sort of left banking, had a bit of commercial experience, but have learned a lot more along my way. And that's through the help of mentors and friends and you know, people in the industry. Um, but being lucky that you know, being a bit more dynamic, being a bit more hungry to help out these people and seek out the business like that fund, which wouldn't typically be a deal a broker looks after. Um, I guess, you know, just not being afraid to have a crack and have a go and, and got in the door. So, yeah, I think that's been probably the key to success. Now, don't reveal the numbers or anything, but on that deal, don't your commissions get capped at a certain amount? It's more so on that deal with residential. If I go to Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, St. George, whatever, the commercials are usually within a band, you know, between, say, 0. 0.55 to 0. 0.65. But it's not enough deviation between the different lenders that you really care mm. um, and it's already priced in. So, again, you're just looking for the consumer outcome and if CBA is offering 3% and St. George is offering 7%, then you're going to go through you know, the cheaper option or the right structure. Commercially, it's it's very transparent. So, the, the commissions for the broker are actually built into the deal. So, if I present to you um, terms from Bank A that might be at 4%, it might say, well, the broker trails 0.25%. And it's kind of been factored in there. So um, that actually, and because we've got the margin so thin on the bank, yeah, it got compressed down a bit, but um, it's still worth its while. But yeah, it wasn't you know, mega, mega bucks. You but couldn't it was retire off the commission. No, no. Nah, nah. It was, I think on that one, but you don't it might have been, yeah, I forget how much. It was still like a couple of grand a month where it was like, it was amazing. It's awesome, isn't it? Like, you know, whether you get out of bed or not, that money's in your account. I just, 
That, like mm. That's the two things I like. I mean, I love to have a business where the money rolls in whether you're working or not, and I love to have a property portfolio that's going up you know, while you sleep, I, I call it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's where the multiplier effect really kicks in. You get leverage, like, because what you're doing is you're effectively getting these assets or income streams, and then you're, you know, you're getting them all, it's like set and forget. I know it's not, you still got to manage them, but you put them away in the bottom drawer and you forget about it, but the income keeps coming in and you're working on the next ones. Exactly. And that's, that's the beauty of this business. And I guess any business where as soon as you've got, I guess my pitching from those days has gone from, well, I can do these sorts of deals to now, I've done these deals and it gives you leverage even to get in with other customers of that sort of caliber um, and, and grow and, and you can sort of, yeah, like I said, you're not desperate or you, you can grow your business, I guess, in a more sustainable way as well because you've got that income coming in every month. You're not having to wake out of bread and feverishly look for the next deal. So now you are a property investor in your own right? Yeah. Yeah, love. It's I don't know if it's my family or ever since I've sort of been in my adult working life, been involved in property um, from my first investment was a, a unit down in Sydney when I was working down there with my sort of 5% deposit, most of which was the first home I was going at the time, which was $14,000, but it was enough to get in the door um, and then you know, build a portfolio from there, which is, yeah, I think really helped underpin probably my wealth outside of the business. And you've made a couple of mistakes along the way. Can you elaborate on them, please? Because, I mean, I, I know that you've been super successful, but everyone sort of can relate and understand and feel for you when you tell them the honest truth and, you know, fess up with the losses. Can you run us through them, please? <laughs> well, it's not all blue skies. I think that's the thing. Like, in my career, personally, like, you can have ups and downs. In my property portfolio, I've made some great investments. But I've made some really bad ones as well. Um, and so I bought that property in Sydney, my first home, and then about within a year of buying that, I'd sort of scampered enough money and borrowed a bit of money from my dad to buy a second one. So I could see the, the Sydney property market was um, it hadn't really done much. This was in like 2009, 2010, um, so it had been fairly flat. The rates were kind of trending up, but um, you know it, was, it felt like there was room for movement there. So I ended up buying um, or putting under contract another small unit in Alexandria. So it was about 330000 um, for one bedroom, uh, one bath, no car space. And on paper, you know, I just sort of did the, the quick calculations thinking, oh, well, I've got this mortgage, I've got that mortgage, I'll potentially rent my old property um, and move into this one. And you know, I've been watching the block and all those shows thinking, oh, I might be able to flip it within a couple of months, make 20 or 30 grand. And if I do that four times a year, I've replaced my income, I'm going to be rich. How can this fail? So I did that. I bought the property, borrowed money from my dad. Effectively, I borrowed almost 100% between from my dad and the bank. Um, got into the property, started doing it up. But one thing I hadn't taken into account um, was one, actually look at my cash flow. Because you know, Kim, with a lot of businesses, cash flow is really king. And you, you know, you're always going to have your income, um, but you're always going to have your expenses. And, and one thing I didn't take into account was the increasing interest rates and the effect that that would have on my expenses. Um, also didn't take into account, I thought I was going to rent both the properties and live on a mate's couch, but I didn't realize that, well, I didn't really think about it hard enough that while I was going to be renovating the place, I obviously can't rent it out and that took about a month. So I got into a situation where I'd rented out my old investment property, moved into this new one and I was basically living off a credit card because um, I hadn't done my cash flow modeling correctly. And, you know, as weeks, as the two or three weeks went by after settlement, it was only literally two or three weeks after settlement, the interest rate started to go up by 0.25, 0.3, because um, the RBA was moving at that time. 
it's just before the rates got cut about a percent um, and, and just really didn't account for and didn't think far enough ahead on the cash flow wise because I was just thinking, well, if I buy it, I'll flip it in six months and I'll sell it. Those figures make sense. But I didn't actually sit down to the nitty gritty and say, well, this is my budget. This is my fixed income for my job at Macquarie at the time, which wasn't much. Um, and these are my fixed expenses. And yeah, so basically it was just um, failing to think about my cash flow um, didn't take into account some easy hacks. So like even you'd know this, and I'm sure you'd advocate it for potentially clients is you can do tax adjustments because um, both the properties were, one of them was a rental is negative geared. I didn't know that, which would potentially have helped my cash flow alleviate some of that money every month and give me um, an adjustment, you know, to get some of that income back and maybe not put me in a bad, as bad a situation as I was. But effectively I got to the point after, you know, only a few weeks after settlement, I had painted the place, had done it up, and I had to sell it. Like I was in mortgage stress, um, which isn't a nice place to be. So I could say for anyone, you know, if you're buying an investment property, do the modeling, actually spend some time. Even if you're going to buy a property, you need to forecast it. Just because the bank's going to give you the money doesn't mean you should take that debt on um, because just because the rates are low now, and they are, doesn't mean they're always going to be that way. So yeah, it was a really valuable lesson, which I've thankfully taken on board because that could have ended poorly. But you still ended up making money on that deal. Uh, I reckon I netted out. Okay. I think I sold it for three fifty-five, and then after agents' comms and all my costs and stamp duty, like I, I would have at best broken even. I think on that one. And now I don't even want to think about it. It'd be worth a fair bit more than that. But again, if I'd modelled it correctly, I could have held it. Now um, you've got a goal that you want to get fifteen properties in the next five years. Can you tell us? Um, how are you planning on doing that? Obviously, you've bounced back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So I think from all that, like it's all, you know, it's all lessons. So that was definitely one on planning and having a bit of a plan in place and sticking with it, and not just sort of shooting from the hip. Um, it's not like, you know, it's a lot of money. It's a big investment, and you need to sort of think about these and talk to the right consultants. Um, yeah, definitely, I want to grow and build a portfolio. of 15 properties over time for the reasons you said before. Um, you know, I want to have a passive income on the side. I want to have the business, the property portfolio and, and other ventures um, that's bringing in income. Um, and so the plan with that is just, you know, slowly and as sustainable as I can, not trying to overgear or overlever because the banks are being pretty tough on that at the moment, but also because, you know, rates are low, they will eventually go up and just factoring in that and just seeing how I can get this sustainably and slow and steady really. Is probably the aim of the next game. Uh, one of your techniques, um, you know, we planned this podcast um, about two or three months ago and for one reason or another we were unable to actually do it. But um, I remember from that original conversation that you told me about a technique that you used where you were buying old Queenslanders, which are those old beautiful old um, weatherboard places. Not necessarily Queenslanders, but you did mention that in your example where you were getting them on a big block and um, you had a system whereby you were buying them in the right zoning in Brisbane and then um, being able to subdivide some blocks off the back. Um, is that a technique that you're using these days? I mean, I, yeah. sorry, just um, in my situation, I actually used that and did that myself. Uh, we've got one up there in Everton Hills recently, but that was your idea. But can you just talk us through how you're utilising it, how you came up with that idea and... and, and um, you know, a bit more of background to it? Yeah, so um, 
Brisbane's basically gone through a bit of rezoning over the last few years where the government's realised that there wasn't a whole lot of density if you compare it to Sydney and Melbourne um, in and around, say, within 10 kilometres of the city. Um, so what the council's done, like typically in Queensland, it's not uncommon to find an 800-square-metre uh, 800 block um, within two or three kilometres of the city with a, you know, a nice old Queenslander sitting on it, but just a whole lot of yard and effectively wasted space where you've got all these houses near great transport corridors or amazing busways or amenity where, you know, it could actually support a lot more density and a lot more population because it makes sense. You know, it's only two kilometres to the city. Um, you might have a cafe and a lot of precincts nearby that aren't, that are being underutilised. So yeah, basically the, the council went through a rezoning a couple of years ago where they said, well, in these areas, um, we're going to classify them as low to medium density. So what that means is behind the Queenslander, you can effectively fit units or go to three storeys behind um, or townhouses to put more density. So instead of there being one house and one family on there, you might fit five or six because then it's not putting extra pressure on the busways because there's already enough capacity there. And instead of sending them, you know, 100 kilometres that way, it's keeping them in um, the existing land and the existing stock that we have. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically... Um, a model where you can get one of these blocks. So um, we've done a lot of projects in uh, Green Slopes, in Annerley, in Northgate um, and Nunda around Brisbane. So that's sort of within three to five kilometres of the city where there'll be a nice old Queenslander or a, a house on the front that you can't knock down because they're pre-war, so they're kind of classic and they look nice. And also financially it doesn't make sense. You might buy them for, say, it used to be 600000 now you might pay seven or 800000 then you can lift the Queensland and move it to the front of the block. Um, and then typically um, we've got one that's finishing now. That's three townhouses behind that. And then under the Queensland, we've actually fit two um, one-bedroom units um, and it all fits sort of on 800 square metres, which is just a great way of you know, you're effectively building it for wholesale. Um, you make your builder's margin or your developer's margin sort of 20 to 30% sometimes. Um, and then typically we'll keep half and sell half um, just to keep that gearing under control and sort of allow you to keep doing it and, and roll from there. Mate, you've just said two absolute um, uh, really useful tips for those investors out there who are wanting that little competitive edge. You, you just said that you jack the house up and you move it to the front. Yeah, so it's just, I guess it's a way of getting more space because then you clear out the back. Um, but also probably the best thing that we ever found out about doing was putting units under the house. So a lot of people will just use it for car parks. Um, but with one that we had recently, yeah, it was like basically lifted, put to the front and sort of at the left-hand side. And then there's a unit along the fence. Well, there's actually two, like along the fence line. Um, they're both like little courtyards and then the car parks are still underneath the house there. Um, cause then you're getting, you know, two strata titled units with those. We didn't need car parks. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Uh, so, what does it cost to jack the house up and move it? Oh, I reckon maybe thirty or forty thousand. It's usually part of all the fixed price, the same contract. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to say, but yeah, overall, like the, although the building price has gone up a bit here, it's still a much more profitable way of doing it than buying you know, a house or a unit on the market and, and doing it that way. And and then before you move that house, you'll get the bulldozer in or the bobcat and you'll dig out units like underground underneath where you're going to move the Queenslander? Well, so like this one in Northgate, um, effectively the house has got lifted. So this, the street could go to say three stories. Um, so the house got 
boosted up so it was a fair bit higher than the ground that it could fit you know, two units underneath in some car parks. Um, but, yeah, it, it depends. There's another one where um, the house got sort of lifted and then there was some oh – no, they won't put it on the side. They were car parks still. There were more units put at the back. It just depends on the block um, and the way – this one in Northgate, the block actually sloped back. So then you didn't have to really dig, dig out because it's quite expensive to excavate and um, to do too many earthworks. So you want to try and work within that. So, sorry, just to clarify, are these? is this one that we're talking about that you put up on three stories? Was that heritage listed? Uh, so, <coughs> pardon me. They're, I think you can't change if they're heritage listed. Okay. But, pardon me. <clears throat> But if they're pre-46, you just can't knock it down, so. Okay. So, and and that's just it right there. What you've just mentioned is, like, no one's doing that. Like, I've been looking at properties in Brisbane for the last six, seven months, and I had this classic um, Queenslander that came up, and it was in the middle of two blocks. With your suggestion, and it needed to be restumped as well. So, I think it's still on the market now. You could just grab it, jack it up, move it to the front corner of the block, restump it, and cut probably, I, probably, I might have even got an extra block off of it. So, so actually, I'll tell you the best worst kept secret that no one ever does is actually by retaining the Queenslander. So, so many people and even clients, because obviously fund developers, um, will just knock down the house at the front because they think, oh, it's old, it's crappy. Um, let's build five townhouses. Mm. Um, so on this site in Northgate, for example, so we've got the Queenslander, two units and three townhouses behind. The block next door, which is exactly the same, the developer knocked down the house and kept five townhouses there, thinking that was going to be a better yield. Mm-hmm. I think it just doesn't make sense knocking down the, the Queenslander because effectively by lifting and moving to the front, you've got a house that is worth five or $600,000. There off the bat, that might have cost you fifty or $100,000 to tart it up. Whereas if you knock it down and you build a new townhouse, it's going to cost you $250,000, $300,000. So if you keep the existing, it costs you $100,000, you've got a house. If you knock it down... You build a new one, cost you three hundred, and you've got a smaller house. So I think, you know, by keeping it, it's so simple, and it makes sense. And you keep the character of the street; it keeps all the councils and everyone happy because it still looks pretty and nice from the front. Um, but as a developer, you, you know, you're pocketing another hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars in profit by retaining the house that's already on there, and just you know, fixing up the kitchen and doing minimal stuff inside. If I came to your weekly team meeting up in your office, would I pick up all these tips and tricks? Possibly. <laughs> it depends on the week. <laughs> I think you need to broadcast it, mate. I reckon it'd go viral. <laughs> anyway, um, can we thank you for all of the, that insight and um, inspiration in what's happening in your property world? However, can we just go back to the podcast, please? Because, like, from what you've told me, doing a podcast uh doesn't correlate with the space that you're operating <laughs> like tell us the story behind why you created the podcast um i think so the podcast is more for the say the retail or the mums and dads side of the business um when i initially started i did go through you know the brainstorming process of well maybe i'll interview developers and get in front of them and talk to them but the reality is a lot of those guys they're really self-educated or they just kind of do it themselves and don't from what I found listening to that stuff as much as the mums and dads and even just the type of content I have to get for that. Um, the original idea was I'd go out and interview developers, get their story and put it on there. A lot of those guys are pretty private mm-hmm. and don't want to broadcast their stories because they're worried the next developer is going to copy their idea or their concept and you know, um, 
that's fine. Um, so yeah, on the retail side of the piece, um, we do get a lot of say first time investors or first homeowners that come to us and I reckon you'd see it as well, Kim. There's a lot of spruikers out there and there's a lot of bad education in the market mm, in that mm, space mm. Um, for first homeowners and first investors. There's a lot of people, like if I just go on Facebook, the amount of bad education there is and the amount of people that are doing it probably for the wrong reasons and giving out the wrong advice, it, it's it's shocking. Mm. Um, so when I saw that, coupled with the passion to actually help out and it's people, you know, the age of my brothers and sisters and, you know, younger people trying to get in the market and trying to have a go, kind of like I did, but don't necessarily have the right advice. I thought, well, got to start this um, and, and sort of was born from there. And it's like what you do. It's a bit of a grind at the beginning. I'm um, trying to do it when you're only, it's only you listening to the sound of your own voice for the first few episodes. But, you know, it, it builds from there and slowly, slowly um, it's getting better and better, I hope. But, but how did you get so many listeners? Um, so I reckon the the way I sort of approached it in the beginning was 50% of the time was on content, 50% of the time was probably on promotion. Um, so whether that's sending it out to friends, family, um, clients, putting on Facebook, putting on other communities like Facebook groups even where mm. there might be property interest groups that might be free, there might be LinkedIn groups where people are broadly interested in property, um, Reddit just anywhere that anyone might be remotely interested in property and might want to listen to some of the anecdotes and stuff I've picked up over the last few years, um, just did it that way and it's kind of slowly grown from that. Um, I, I think it's like any business and any marketing venture, you can't sell a secret a bit. So whether or not you're an accountant, you own a fish and chip shop or you're doing a podcast, you need to be out there promoting because if you're not, it's pretty hard to get people to do it for you. Mm. Um, so on the weekend, I just wanted to listen to some of your episodes and I listened to Peter Switzer. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell us about how the hell you pulled off landing a podcast with him. Mate, I, I think I'm just, <laughs> I was opportunistic actually. I was at a conference where he'd spoken, um, and he's just an amazing guy. He's got the show, The Switzer Report, um, has his own business I think doing all sorts of stuff in media. Um, and he got down from the stage and sort of accosted him and said, hey, like, can I have five minutes of your time to do a property podcast? Um, it's for young people trying to help people. Like, can you help? And he's like, yeah, okay. Basically, as he's walking to the cab, I sort of grabbed a meeting room at that hotel, um, pulled him aside and just off the cuff, like he was just amazing. And he had a great story about how, you know, in property, probably one of the most underutilized tools is the capital gains exemption on your principal place of residence. It's something that people you know, might know it's there but don't use it. And he used the example of I think he bought a house in Sydney and Paddington somewhere for, say, a million bucks, did some renovations and sold it not long after for $2 million. And, you know, it's the only money he's ever made that was tax-free. So I think just those small tidbits you get from those people, it's just it's incredible. Um, the other one I have to mention is Mark Boris. Like, both those guys I'm huge, huge fans of. I mean, I, the thing that stuck out about the Mark Boris one is um, you must have gone into his yellow brick road office or something and yeah. set up your equipment in a meeting room. Is that what happened? Yeah, because, like, I'd set it up, I think, weeks out and, like, I'd phone to Sydney to do it and in amongst other stuff. But, you know, that was mainly why I was there. Um, and I'd prepared, like, I'd learned his you know, Order of Australian Medalist, and I learned his company history and the names of his son and his kids and all this stuff. 
And then I'm waiting there. It gets like 11. It's like 11.05 and 11.10. He's meant to be there 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, God, he's like stood me up. And he just like bursts through the door, sits down in place, like start. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, good to me. Like put my hand out to shake. And he's like kind of like picks up his phone, looks the other way. I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press record now. Um, so like respect, like he's obviously a busy man, um, but probably wasn't on the, the highest of his priority list, but still an amazing mind. Like he was just straight on. As soon as I press record, you know, his, his charisma and his charm and his wit is, is pretty incredible. I think, yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, I, I love the first line, you know, you said, uh, you know, you asked him some story about how did he buy his first house or what he did to do. And he said, you know, oh, basically, that was, <laughs> you go, <laughs> he said, uh, well, you know, sort of got my, Wife pregnant, we're about to have a kid, so I needed a place to live. <laughs> you know, this guy that I held in such high esteem was just basically like he was almost answering in like this ochre Australian accent. I, don't no, know so a- I made the mistake because before they're like, okay, you can talk about anything, it's fine, just don't talk about like his divorce, like his ex wife, <laughs> or his kids. And then, like, in the first question, asking about the wife who divorced. The kid that was on the way that's like he's gone off the rails a bit, and, you know, like his whole life story. That's why I think he was a bit, he was put off from, from the first oh, word oh, go. Oh, <laughs> I was a little bit. I've gotten any better since then, but you know, that's all right. It's all learning. But I think that <laughs> that, that adds credibility to the podcast. Like you see it and you think, wow, these guys are getting some heavy hitter guests on the show. They must know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> but, but just getting back to that, um, so he – it was a really short interview and it went for like 10 minutes and then it sounded like someone came to the window and and he um, – you know, they called him out and he basically left halfway through the podcast. It, it was definitely – it was one of those ones where like he didn't want to be there. He was only there just because someone had put in his calendar and like his, you know, intern PA had walked into the door um, and also, yeah, I think – if it hadn't been for those reasons, he would have happily just told me to go with the wind and, and see you later. But I, I think he gave like a couple of lukewarm insights, but I think it's also hard being, you know, the chairman of a listed company and quite a public figure. I think he needs to be quite careful of his opinion, whereas, yeah. you know, us probably less so. Obviously, you want to not give the wrong advice, but um, he was he was really measured in everything that he said, um, even like to the point, sort of towards the end of my wrap up, I'd written this great wrap up and it was like, oh, Mark, you know, as, as former chairman of Wizard, as founder of YBI, is like, stop. And I sort of took a step back and I'm like, oh, pa- pardon? It's like, stop, edit that out, say that again, don't say Wizard, say YBR. And I'm like, oh, okay, sorry, Mark. <laughs> like, he's just... Um, He's pretty direct, but I guess that's how he is. And oh, I love <laughs> those stories because that's life, isn't it? Like yeah. you put your foot in it. He didn't give a shit. He just said stop. He didn't care who you are. Delete yeah. and go again. But I didn't actually pick that up in the edit, so well done for that. Yeah. <laughs> so now just getting back to your podcast because I am very jealous of the numbers you're getting because you are getting more downloads than me. Anyway, <laughs> apart from that, um, what ha- is there any crazy shit that sort of happened with – the notoriety that's come with that podcast? Oh, nothing crazy. Like, let me think. 
Nah, not much. Actually, the only weird thing that happened that felt a bit surreal, but it might sound a bit lame. We we started doing a meetup um, where every month we get you know everyone into a room. We sort of got like thirty people and twenty people, and then we've sort of discontinued it because we just there's a lot of spending a lot of energy for um, it. Just got a bit tough to do, so we're going to do webinars instead. But yeah, I remember the first one, we finished up our chat and like we did like a bit of a presentation just on a topic we'd covered before on the podcast. Like, thanks guys, um, if you've got questions, we'll be around. And this guy came up with his phone and was like, oh, hey, um, can I get a photo with you guys? And I'm like, what? Like, we're just normal, like, we're just like you. Why do you want a photo of us? There's way better looking people in this room. I don't know why you'd bother. <laughs> That's the only like slightly weird thing where we're like, oh, this doesn't like, we're not that, we're just... Two normal guys that you know, awesome. chat. Have you had ourselves. anyone reach out to you from like UK or USA and, hey, you Aussie guys, you know? No, not yet, but if there's anyone listening, happy, <laughs> happy to chat. <laughs> well, my audience is sort of like global, so if anyone's out there and they want to, you know, pick Jade Brains, I certainly will be in the future, you know, reach out to him. Anyway, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you ever so much, Jaden. If people want to reach out to you, um, how do they get in contact with you? Yep. Yeah. So the podcast, the rentvestingpodcast.com.au, um, all my business is Red and Co. Red, uh, R E D A N D C O.com.au. Check Jane it out. Vecchio, thank you ever so much for being a guest. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Kim. Appreciate your time. Bye bye. 